0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Up to. Eight years ago, Up to started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives and in doing so have found that there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman and our guest today is Dr. Mark Gilinov. He's a heart surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, the number one rated heart center in the United States. In fact, he's the chair of the thoracic and cardiovascular surgery department. So he's an incredibly skilled surgeon and in a position of great importance at the Cleveland Clinic. He'll start by telling us a little bit about what he does and how his time is managed among all of his responsibilities. He'll talk about the journey, getting to this position, and about some of the choices that he had to make along the way. Dr. Gilanov will touch on his family and his introduction to surgery as a child, listening for the moment when he says, It's not that hard. Our host, Adam Kaufman, will ask how he views his patients and how he copes with the stress and the gravity of being a heart surgeon. And we'll get answers to some of the biggest questions like Is red wine good for your heart? And what about dark chocolate? Dr. Gilanov will also talk to us a little bit about what he's excited about in the future of heart medicine. Right now, we're excited that you've joined us here on the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back.
1: One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long-form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Kalfi, Ohio-based law firm has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio, and also in Washington DC, in New York, and Indianapolis too. They are a full service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfee because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfee has agreed to partner with Uptu. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee. You can find them at calfee.com
0: or on the UpTo Foundation website. Welcome back. You're listening to the UpTo Podcast and here's your host, Adam Kaufman.
1: We are very excited today and we thank you for downloading this special episode. Today we're recording on location inside one of the most renowned hospitals in the world. Our guest today is the chairman of heart surgery at the top-ranked heart center in the United States. Given that the Cleveland Clinic has been ranked number one in heart care for 25 straight years, and the fact that our guest today is the chairman of that top-ranked team, it would not be an exaggeration to state that we are visiting with the most sought-after heart surgeon in the United States. A graduate of Yale University and Johns Hopkins Medical School, where he was ranked number one in his class, our guest is today considered a global leader in robotic heart surgery, mitral valve repair, and among other subspecialties, atrial fibrillation. He has written more than 400 medical publications, has been a member of 10 scientific societies. He has been granted several patents for his surgical inventions, and he's won many awards for both innovation and also service excellence. Somehow, today's guest on the show also has served as the chief experience officer, and he selectively travels to almost every corner of the U.S. and abroad to deliver speeches to both the medical community and also the general public. Our guest also found the time to co-author Heart411, a book I honestly loved reading, which has been called, quote, The Definitive Guide for Heart Health in America. Dr. Gilanov, welcome to Up to. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, what have you been up to?
2: Two things, operating and talking. Sometimes talking to patients, sometimes talking about patients, sometimes talking about operating. But for the most part, operating and communicating.
1: Do you think you have like a good understanding of how much, if you know, the day is 100%, like what percent is doing each of the things? I'm really interested in how busy people achieve so many different pursuits. You know, how do you break that down?
2: About 30%, maybe 40%, actually in the operating room doing operations, Another 30% or so talking to patients, talking before surgery, talking after surgery, talking to patients' families. And the rest is either research or administration, things that help our department keep going.
1: So you're in a leadership position outside the surgery room. Is that something you sought out or it just kind of goes with the portfolio of responsibilities as you achieve more? Or do you find yourself sometimes missing Uh, more time with the patients?
2: I still have enough time with the patients. Um, I sought out leadership once I was confident in my surgical ability. So I did have the opportunity about 10 years ago to apply to be leader of our department, and I chose not to because I thought I can still get to be a better doctor. Mm. I can still work toward being a better surgeon. And, of course, every day, every day I can get better. But I felt 10 years ago... I needed more time to focus on my primary calling, which is to operate on people and fix their hearts. So I wasn't ready to transition to something else till I was truly satisfied that, uh, yes, operating, I've got that down.
1: Your humility is coming out here. You had the humility to know 10 years ago let's wait a little longer, let's hone our skills, let's continue with the innovation on the surgery side before we apply for leadership. So was that a big decision? Or were some of your colleagues saying, you should go for it? Or do you have any mentors coaching you through a decision like that?
2: Almost everyone said, you should go for it. Really? You're the natural person at this time.
1: I probably told you that back then.
2: Um, But it it was tough to say no, because yes, I want to be a leader, but I didn't want to leave unfinished business. The unfinished business being, take what I learned in medical school and learned in residency, and I've learned since I arrived at Cleveland Clinic in 1997, take that as far as I can before I move on to the next thing. I felt that going for leadership 10 years ago would be leaving unfinished business. How good could I get as a surgeon?
1: I guess I'm not surprised, but I am surprised that so many of your colleagues were pushing you to take on that leadership role some time ago. So I know there's been a lot of patients between then and now who are glad that you didn't. How many surgeries do you perform a day or a month or however you count it?
2: Maybe 350 to 400 a year.
1: So 400 a year, 10 years, several thousand lives positively affected in their families because of your continued work in the the surgical center.
2: Yeah, and I'm ultimately happy with my decision. I had no idea that I would have another opportunity to rise here at Cleveland Clinic I'm glad it worked out that way because I would have hate to have had to leave, mm-hmm. go somewhere else to mm-hmm. advance, uh, specifically because I don't think there's any place like this in the world.
1: 65,000 employees, almost 5,000 physicians now, and ranked number one by the most reputable ranking Source U.S. News 25 straight years It really is remarkable But I know you have been recruited And I'm sure other organizations flirt with you all the time But I'm sure the institution here is so glad you stayed
2: I'm glad I stayed I go look at other institutions Every year I travel, whether recruited or not And visit two, three, or four hospitals Mm -hmm. And every one of their cardiac surgery teams I will find does something a little better than what we do
1: Again, your humility
2: So we bring it home um, we, oh, okay. we, it's collaborative. Well, we see something that looks good, something that maybe looks better than what we do here. We try it.
1: Let's step back a little bit further in time because I know early on you, growing up close to the Cleveland Clinic, thought you might want to work at the Cleveland Clinic. Did you always know that you'd go into the heart category, or was it more general medicine and then deciding on heart care later?
2: Heart category.
1: I had family
2: members who had heart surgery, heart attacks, heart problems while I was growing up. Mm. So I was naturally interested in the heart. It was likely one way or another I would be involved with the heart, either as a patient or as a doctor. So far, thankfully, as a doctor who Mm -hmm. helps patients. Right. Um, But I had an internally developed interest in the heart because of what my family members were going through.
1: We're all born into somebody else's story. And that story shapes our early years, at least the decisions we make. It sounds like some of that health history in your family shaped your career path early on. Yeah. And it will be hard to talk about this because you are so humble, but was it clear early on that you had a gift for medicine? Or was it something you really had to work at? Because athletes, other types of leaders, they know they have certain gifts at a pretty early age. I assume that's true for you. I assume you're not going to want to talk about that, but... When did you know that this was the right path for you?
2: My dad was an OBGYN, and he would bring home instruments that we used to sew in the operating room. And he would give them to me, and uh, he would teach me when I was in high school, how do you sew tissue? How do you put blood vessels back together? And I wouldn't say that it was immediately apparent, oh, I know how to do this. It wasn't. Uh, But I found that I could learn how to do it. I think there's almost no one who's... Born a fabulous, gifted surgeon, Hmm. we just all start at a certain place and then develop it, and it's not that hard. Almost anyone can develop it. I did
1: have an. I bet that's not true.
2: Well, the the most natural surgeon I've ever seen in a first-time handling instrument situation was a Navy SEAL. We had a Saturday morning with some Navy SEALs discussing leadership and teaching and organization.
1: With them or here at the clinic.
2: They came to us, okay. and uh, I was at a table in which we had residents and Navy SEALs. Neither one of them had experience handling surgical instruments. My job was to explain how to sew two blood vessels together. We had artificial blood vessels, and uh, then coach them through it. The residents did okay, and I thought my teaching was fine. Then we handed the instruments to the Navy SEAL, and he picked up the needle holder and the suture and said, something like this. And I said, not something like that, exactly like that. So perhaps he's the only truly gifted surgeon I've encountered, but he has other things he's busy doing.
1: That's amazing. Now, do you think that was just random because he's a gifted human being, a polymath, or do you think there's something in his training as a SEAL that led to that aptitude?
2: He's likely a gifted human being. Because in talking with him and some of the other SEALs, it looks like hard work is not enough to become a Navy SEAL. You need a little something extra that you're born with.
1: Wow. Well, when we sat down today, I I handed you a photograph that a close friend of mine wanted you to see of his father-in-law, 14 family members around. You did the heart surgery seven years ago. And my friend's point was, how do you put a price tag on the memories that have now been shared because of the great work you and your team did? You have an experience like that almost every day. This family experienced it once. How, how do you think about the impact you're having or do you try to limit that so we don't have like a God-like syndrome? Or how do you manage your pride? We all know surgeons who are really full of themselves. You're the opposite of that, but you get all these accolades. So how do you emotionally deal with confidence, but humility, pride, et cetera?
2: It's pretty easy. I think back every day to a day when one of my kids had an operation and what it felt like to be in the waiting room. And I also think back to the times when I needed to reach that doctor when things weren't going as expected, when there were issues. And how important it was for me to be able to reach that doctor, and how at that moment, that doctor was the most important person in the my most life. Important. Need to reach him. Right. And I therefore returned the favor to my own patients.
1: Do unto others as you want done yeah. to you.
2: And this morning, I came in and made rounds, and I made no medical decisions, none were necessary. My team had already made all the right moves but I spent an hour dropping by people's rooms and talking to them.
1: And as a patient, that 10 minutes when the surgeon comes in is like the most important moment of the day. The whole family's waiting for it at 6.30 in the morning or whatever time. And so you remember that as the family yourself when you had children in that situation.
2: Yeah, we might say Monday we've got 20 cases Twenty open heart operations, which will make us that day the busiest center in the U.S. In Mm. fact, we're the busiest center most days. Right. Um, But they're not twenty cases; they're twenty people. For each person having heart surgery on Monday, this will be one of the biggest days of that person's life. It's right up there with marriage, child being born. Absolutely. It's a big, big deal. So we don't just do cases. Or operations.
1: And in your own training, have you had to learn how to manage stress? Or is that something not talked about? You just have to deal with it? I had Baker Mayfield recently as a guest, and he has a different line of work. And his is a much bigger audience, bigger audience, form of entertainment. But let's acknowledge much less important, but everyone watches his work. And so I asked him a lot about managing stress and compartmentalizing. So, have you had to hone your own skills in managing stress? Are, are you good at that? Is it like grace oh, under I'm, pressure?
2: I'm sure I could be better. Um, Again, the we humility. had in my training no training so about a, managing stress. That's amazing. Nothing at all. It's better now, but still imperfect. Um, figuring out how to manage it was you're on your own, just deal with it. The way we do it now in our department, though, is we function much more as a team. Okay. We do a lot of operations together. If you walk down the halls, you'll see surgeons talking to each other, going over cases, sometimes discussing things that didn't work out and what is the next move. The key factor there is no one here is alone. You don't have to manage your stress alone. We'll help you.
1: And is there a safe setting in which you can actually get real with maybe a colleague boy, I was really stressed out today. I didn't perform at my best. Again, like Baker Mayfield's line of work, he can do that, and it's just like a missed touchdown. Challenges in your line of work have a little different level of ramification. So are you able to cope through that, counseling, anything?
2: Uh, Not counseling so much. Um,
1: But a peer group or just colleague to colleague? Just
2: colleague to colleague. Last week I was there for an operation that one of my friends was doing, And um, we ran into some trouble. We got out of trouble together. And at the end, he said, I'm really glad you were there. And we are always there.
1: Um, And is that unique to this institution?
2: Yes. Yeah, I had a case last year where I was operating on an ICU nurse. ICU nurse here who has been here as long as I have, 25 years. And um, we unexpectedly could not get off the heart-lung machine. We could not get her heart working. Now it's about 9 p.m. And um, there were five other surgeons still here. And we all gathered together in the operating room and figured out what to do. None of us could figure out what was wrong, but we figured out together what to do. And she went home about eight days later, and she's fine now.
1: Tremendous. One of the things I've always enjoyed seeing about you is how you can also relate to lay people, if that's the right word, non-medical professionals, you do such a good job of explaining things in simple terms. You were one of the first guests ever at one of our live Up To events. I don't know if you remember, like I eight, do. eight years ago. And it was only 50 people in the room, but none of them were medical. They were all CEOs of the investor community, but you had them captivated. And I've had so many physicians speak to groups before where they lose the audience because they get too medical. So is that something you tried to? to get better at, or is that just one of your God-given talents to be able to explain things easily?
2: Try to get better. Good. I mean, the high school I went to in Cleveland, if you said, what was the single thing that I took away from my high school? It was learning how to write reasonably clearly.
1: Communicating, okay.
2: And um, in college, same thing, learning to write. Since getting to Cleveland Clinic, um, every year we bring in speech coaches to work with all the surgeons to teach us how to communicate better. That's interesting. Sometimes they're actors or acting instructors. Uh, Right now we're working with a guy who's a professor of business at one of the universities locally.
1: Always getting better, just trying to get better.
2: Yeah, we actually sit in this very room. We bring a podium in, simulate a talk, and uh, he'll film it more often than not, and then we'll go over the film. I guess this is what Baker Mayfield does. He goes over his film.
1: Yeah, exactly. Always trying to get better every week, learning from their own mistakes. There's some similarities there. You're listening to The Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. During the first season of The Up To Podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make, happily, is to partner with Vivid Front, a full-service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland, that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc Magazine, top 5,000 fastest growing companies, North Coast's top places to work and several others. They're known for their talent, they're known for their creativity, they're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show check out vividfront.com or you can email me and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me She can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit
0: townhallohiocity.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Today's guest, Dr. Mark Gilinoff. Let's talk about school. You were number one in your
1: class in high school. You were number one in your class uh, at Yale. You were number one in your class at Johns Hopkins, which Hopkins and Harvard are ranked the top medical schools every year. And now you're the chairman of heart surgery at the number one ranked heart center. Are you trying to be at the top? Or are you just simply being the best you can be? And it's okay to achieve goals. So... I'll give you permission to say, yeah, you set high goals. How do you think about this level of achievement you always seem to get to?
2: I can only try to be the best I can be. And that's about it.
1: So you weren't motivated to be number one in your class.
2: Oh, it's, is, uh, is there
1: a competitive streak in you at all? I guess that's what yeah, I'm searching some. for. I
2: mean, um, it's a nice thing, but uh, there's always going to be someone somewhere who's better, without a doubt. Right. You know, it's not like the tennis rankings where at the end of the year we say, all right, Rafael Nadal was number one in the world. We don't have rankings like that.
1: but Not by surgeon, right? No. But you just, are the chairman of the number one ranked heart center. Yeah. That's and a pretty to legitimate ranking.
2: We'd like to think so. We, we <laughs> like, we like those particular so.
1: rankings. The humility is just unbelievable. My, my producer Dave is shaking his head because we, we feature a lot of humble, successful people, but you're just at a whole other level. We might have to think of a new title for this episode. It's so... Refreshing, how humble you are, Mark. What do you like to do when you're not working? How do you kind of relax or recharge because your day job is a pretty stressful Mm one?
2: Mostly interact with my kids. Uh,
1: You have a daughter and a son, right?
2: Two daughters, one son. Oh,
1: okay, forgive me.
2: A son who's graduated college, a daughter who's in college, and a daughter who's applying to college.
1: And the two went to Yale? Uh,
2: No, my son went the other direction. He just graduated from Harvard.
1: okay. And was that okay with you, or...?
2: When he chose to go to Harvard over Yale, he asked me something that probably you don't hear very often. He said, Dad, will you still be proud of me if I go to Harvard? Oh, my goodness.
1: Didn't you just, like, lean over and hug him? I mean, that's... No, oh, I said no. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, I, I said, of course. <laughs> and is medicine in his future?
2: I think so. He's applying to medical school this year.
1: Okay. And one at home, so you're going to be an empty nester pretty soon. Yes. How do you feel about that? Is that going to change, like, the activities you and your wife do? Yeah, I think
2: we will travel to um, see my daughters in college to see them play tennis.
1: I remember when you and I were getting to know each other when our kids were younger, you were doing a lot of tennis tournaments. Yes. That's how I was with soccer. Maybe back then we would complain about uh, having to drive 30 or 40 minutes somewhere, but I yearn for those days now.
2: There was nothing and still is nothing more stressful for me than watching my daughters play tennis.
1: Is that so? See, I love, to me, it's my favorite thing watching my daughter play college soccer now. It's my favorite. You get stressed out. Absolutely. So that's where the competitive side in you comes out. Maybe not in your professional pursuits, but making sure your kids achieve.
2: Uh, Competitive on the behalf of others.
1: (laughs) Okay. Do you uh, play tennis still yourself?
2: Um, Rarely. You run? I'd like to. Right now, I'm sidelined with various orthopedic things. Nothing serious. What's going
1: on? I know a good orthopedic surgeon or two. Uh, What's going on? I
2: hope I don't need surgery. Achilles tendonitis, herniated disc in the back, a little bit of patellar tendonitis in the right knee.
1: Let's give our listeners one factoid right now. Is it really true that red wine is better than white wine? What do the studies tell us?
2: Depends which one tastes better to you. Uh, Medically, they're equivalent.
1: See, we all think red wine's better.
2: Yeah, if there's an active ingredient in wine that's good for you, it's a little bit of alcohol, emphasis on a little bit.
1: So why is this theory that red wine is somehow good for our heart so accepted? Is it a marketing thing? Or?
2: No, it, it comes from an old study that had investigators look at people in France, particularly in Bordeaux, and try to answer the question, why do these people who live in Bordeaux, France, have a very low risk of heart disease? They don't have a great diet. They have a high-fat, high-red meat diet. They smoke a fair bit. What's the secret ingredient to their lives that is responsible for a low risk of heart disease? And they said, aha, these people in Bordeaux drink a lot of red wine. Maybe that's it.
1: It, So that became the American conclusion that red wine is better.
2: And it turns out that people who drink a little bit of alcohol, on average, tend to live longer than people who don't. And on average, tend to have fewer heart attacks than people who don't. That's controversial. Not a strong enough effect that we're handing out prescriptions for red or white wine or beer or vodka or gin. But for sure, a little bit of alcohol is compatible with a healthy lifestyle and a good long life.
1: So it sounds like you're saying that whether it's white wine, red wine, or even a beer or a regular sized one cocktail is equally maybe good for the heart. Yeah. See, that's surprising to me. No one talks about it that way. But you're you're debunking the myth. That's awesome. Very powerful. You're affecting more people than you realize by saying this right now.
2: We'll see if uh, wine sales or beer sales go up.
1: Right. What about innovations on this more serious side in the surgery room? You've had some patents yourself. Are you most excited about something right now that you just got approved or that you're on the verge of bringing into the surgical center?
2: The thing that we're most excited about is being able to do heart valve repairs through very small incisions, which we do with a surgical robot. And it's really pretty cool. Making rounds this morning, looking at a woman who had heart surgery on Monday, she's leaving the hospital today and she looks normal. She has a little incision on her side. You won't see it if she wears a bathing suit, even a bikini, you won't see it. And she actually had heart surgery, was on the heart-lung machine. Her heart was stopped. We fixed a valve inside her heart. And I think that's pretty cool to be kind of sneaky. Get in there, fix a valve, and no one knows.
1: The old way would have been a larger incision and a more visible scar. Right,
2: right Right down the middle. And we do that when that is the life-saving approach. have to save the life and do it that way. Of
1: course. So can you try to explain to us in a few moments what is it like to actually go inside somebody's heart and improve whatever the problem is. I mean, can you walk us through that for a few moments? All of us will never have that opportunity to do that. What are you thinking about when the heart-lung machine is on? And
2: Maybe 60 or 70 years ago, it was miraculous that you could stop someone's heart, open it up, work on the inside of the heart, and close the heart, and then start the heart up and have the person talking to you the next day. Hmm. Now it's not miraculous. It's happening about 50 yards from where we're sitting. Um, wow. So I would say that few of us think about that aspect. That's routine.
1: Few of us, the surgeons, it's yeah. so routine. And when, pa- on, on a surgery day, are you doing two or three in a day?
2: Yeah, usually two or three. Patients will often ask, are you going to stop my heart? Because that sounds pretty dramatic. Yes, I will stop your heart. But don't worry, it always starts again.
1: Have you ever met a professional in a different line of work? I'm trying to think right now myself, like maybe it's a pilot who has to navigate an unexpected problem or an infantryman who's fighting for his life or someone else's. I mean, this is a very sensitive moment when you're first going in, making sure the heart-lung machine is perfect, the anesthesiology has done the intended work, but it's just routine for you at this point because you've done it so often.
2: Yeah, I've had um, engineers, in particular, ask a lot of questions. Do you have a backup generator? What happens if the power fails? What the if the answer is yes lung sh- on
1: the generator, right? Yeah, okay.
2: backup to a backup to a backup. <laughs> okay. Uh, what happens if the heart-lung machine stops working? What happens if the guy who runs the heart-lung machine passes out? Um, all kinds of questions. And I'm certain we have not thought of everything, but we've thought about A lot of contingencies. Yes.
1: Back as a student can you practice these contingencies or it's just what you read about how do you train up to that level of kind of emergency management control
2: two ways simulation just uh, like with pilots
1: okay so you can do simulation we with have cadavers uh, and
2: yeah well actually all computerized many uh, private companies making computer simulations for various issues in medicine whether it's procedural or diagnostic and then real experience that's why residency takes a few years
1: I want to kind of balance the serious with something um, more kind of um, whimsical, but still I think it'll re- uh, be relevant to our listeners. Regarding dark chocolate, a lot of us really like chocolate and we justify eating it by presumably thinking it's healthy. Can you tell us that? Can you please affirm that chocolate is good for us? A grateful nation awaits for your answer.
2: A small square of dark chocolate is neutral to slightly positive.
1: Neutral, one small square.
2: A lot of dark chocolate, you'll have to run a few miles because that's a lot of calories.
1: Why do we think it's good for us?
2: Dark chocolate has more antioxidants than does milk chocolate. That bitter taste in dark chocolate, that's the taste of the antioxidants. The percent cocoa is related to antioxidants, meaning the higher the percentage, the more antioxidants. And theoretically, only theoretically, antioxidants are good for your body, good for your cells, good for your tissues. That's true in a laboratory in a Petri dish. In a big, complex person, it's never been shown Mm. to be correct. So if you said theoretically, what's better, milk or dark chocolate? The answer is theoretically, dark chocolate. But barely. But just barely, or maybe not at all. So if you're in a hotel and they leave a couple of pieces of chocolate by your pillow, one's dark, one's milk, take the dark.
1: That's what I do. But just one. Just one. More than chocolate, I love coffee. Please tell us that coffee is good for us. I know not with all the whipped cream and the flavored uh, sugar cream, but is, is coffee still good for us? I believe it is. Yeah,
2: overall it is. Same thing. Coffee is antioxidants. People who have a couple of cups of coffee a day uh, seem to live longer than people who don't. That's good to know. <clears throat> Can't prove causality there. That's just an observation.
1: A lot of doctors do say, though, coffee is good for us. It's
2: probably, again, kind of like dark chocolate. Not bad. This is such and a downer, okay. this
1: conversation.
2: Well, how about this? The artificial sweeteners almost certainly don't cause cancer.
1: Oh, well, that's good. Okay. We'll get more uh, vanilla-flavored Uh yeah. There's so many different versions of almond milk cream and et cetera, et cetera, I can't keep up with them all, but I, I still love a good cup of coffee. Do, do you have coffee? Yeah, one in the morning. And do you have chocolate? I forgot to ask you. Yeah. Dark.
2: Whatever my secretary has out.
1: Okay. Well, we brought both dark and uh, lighter chocolate today. What about um, the future for you in the workplace? Are you most excited about technology? Or are you most excited about genetic discovery? Or what really gets your belly rumbling when you think about uh, the near-term horizon for heart health?
2: For cardiac surgical things, technology. Technology. Uh, Doing things better, more quickly, smaller incisions, maybe even without incisions. So that's all technology. That's when you're at the point that there is an honest-to-goodness plumbing problem in the heart. I think that is the horizon now that we can actually see. It's not a distant.
1: Without incision occur, through the throat or?
2: Well, it'll be a small incision in a blood vessel like the artery or vein to your leg. Okay. Sometimes the vein or artery in another part of the body. Um, So that's dealing with the plumbing, preventing the plumbing from going bad in the beginning. That's a long ways off. Mm. Long ways off.
1: And is that because of just human behavior or because we're still not anywhere near where we need to be in terms of learning?
2: Behavior is the thing that is theoretically controllable. But it's not
1: right. Human uh, nature, it's hard yeah. to control.
2: Yeah. Uh, people say it's hard to herd cats. I think it's much harder to herd humans, <laughs> to get them to do what's right for themselves. Um, but the genetics of this will someday be better understood.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit on the behavior? I remember one time we were traveling together somewhere. I think it might have been in Florida. And you gave a talk to of mostly retired active people, but retired people. And you explained, and correct me if I'm wrong, that going from no activity to walking is even of better benefit than going from being a walker to a runner. For sure. You did say that?
2: Yes, some activity is far better than no activity. You get your biggest bang for the buck going from nothing to something, just walking 30 minutes a day. But if you really want to get better cardiovascular health, do something that makes you sweat
1: get your heart rate up, makes you sweat. Yes. I think the question that was posed back when you gave that answer about walking was, what's the easiest first step people can take just to begin to live a healthier life? So you're also saying making you sweat now. So a lot of people who are older or heavy, it's hard to do maybe a Peloton or you know some of the other things that others can do.
2: So but walking's not bad.
1: Walking's not yeah. bad.
2: Don't drive around for 15 minutes looking for the closest parking spot to the restaurant. Hmm. Just take one that's far away and walk.
1: So the onset of like wearables, Fitbit, that's been positive. People are counting Um, their steps.
2: I think it's good to count. We don't have any real evidence that has resulted in a health benefit, having a Fitbit, Apple Watch, Garmin, Hmm. whatever. Theoretically... I have
1: seen it change the behavior of humans, though, around me. It's really remarkable. Can't hurt.
2: It definitely cannot hurt. Um, It turns out that the people who are most motivated to say, get a Fitbit or a Garmin or an Apple Watch. Already fit. They're already fit. Exactly. That's true. You see some triathlete wearing this super fancy Garmin watch that's got a GPS hookup that he can communicate with the space station and also knows his elevation (laughs) and calorie count at every moment. That guy was going to be fit no matter what.
1: Just measuring himself in one additional way. Yes. What are some of the most common, though, early steps for the non-triathlete, maybe keeping them away from your surgery table or recovering a few months after your procedure, what are the tips you give folks who want to begin to live healthier lives?
2: If you smoke, do your best to quit. Still, 10%, 12% of Americans smoke. That's much better than it was. It's
1: decreased, right? Even since you've been a professional, I'm sure. Yeah,
2: that has decreased. And for exercise, it's so hard for people to stick with it, so don't do it alone. Join a class, get a personal trainer. If you're a cardiac patient, go to cardiac rehab, but make it something that appears on your Outlook calendar so that you actually do it.
1: And what about for yourself? Is there something that you and your wife like to do to the physical fitness side? Is it tennis or do you guys take walks together?
2: Running. Um, once I can run again.
1: Oh, you both run together.
2: We used to. Now she was injured for about a year and she's running again and now I'm injured, but eventually.
1: Aging, it happens to all of us. It's better
2: than the alternative.
1: It is better than the alternative.
2: At least as far as we know.
1: Can you uh, think back? I mean, you're still young, but I like to ask folks who are as successful as you are. Everything seems like it went so well in your career. But if you could go back and talk to the 21-year-old version of yourself, is there any advice you would give your younger self that you've now had a chance to learn?
2: Physically, I would tell my younger self, don't run every day. Mm. Run every other day because you're going to have a certain number of steps in your legs. Don't know how many it is. See,
1: that worries me for don't real. don't them up. I think about that because I'm a, I'm a heavier runner and I would love to run every day, but I'm now back to every other day. But I interrupted you. Okay, so... So there
2: are some people who can run every other day and there are some people who can run every day.
1: So you would tell yourself, don't run every day because you're feeling it in the joints now.
2: Yeah, and I would tell myself when you're operating... Don't stand hunched over for hours on end. Every 10 or 15 minutes, stand up, look at the ceiling or sky, stretch, and then look back down.
1: Is that related to like a back problem? Yeah. Uh, I meant to say this earlier. I see a lot more stand-up desks in the workplace. That's got to be a good thing, right?
2: I think overall it is. uh, Tough for some of us like me who are used to sitting down and typing to change it to standing up. It doesn't feel right.
1: But as a general um, health improvement for society, changing behavior, probably a good addition to the routine to have more stand-up deaths in the workplace?
2: Yeah. And overall, say coronary artery disease, that's what causes heart attacks. About 90% of that is related to behavior. And 10% is what are your genes? How old are you? Are you male or female?
1: So 90% of the variables we could have.
2: You could control. Yeah.
1: That's remarkable.
2: Most people don't.
1: And yet we can. So how do we get that education out? Podcasts like this, books like the one you've written. You go on TV sometimes, I know.
2: I think education helps, but it's insufficient. Who doesn't know that smoking is bad for you? Right. Who doesn't know it's bad to weigh 300 pounds if you're 5'8"? You can tell people that, but something novel, something new to change behaviors.
1: Is the U.S. healthier in terms of heart than other nations, westernized nations, or are we in the middle, or are we behind? Middle. Where are the healthiest heart nations?
2: I think it's probably Japan, except for smoking. Mm. Uh, but the more industrialized and developed nations become, the more they become like we are,
1: and which is the same. You mean by energy. that bad food, fast food? Yes. Uh, tougher lifestyles. So, what gives you the most hope then, if if that's the reality of? the behavior of Americans, is there something, a trend that you're most excited about?
2: No particular trend. The hope is that people of my kids' generation will want to be in good shape.
1: I think I see that. I see it with 20-year-olds now. If I'm 49 and I have workers around me who are 20, I feel like they're more aware of the type of food they're buying at least. Uh, Is it organic and I know not organic is great, but there seems to be more awareness, at least, on diet.
2: I think there is, and they spend so much time taking selfies and other pictures of each other that maybe they want to look good for Image. the pictures.
1: I never thought about that, but I bet I bet that would be true. Maybe the motivation isn't the proper one, but at least it'll lead to healthier selves.
2: It very well could.
1: Like I love, uh, at least what I've read, how we can move away from one-size-fits-all prescriptions to really customizing Therapeutics. Are, are you spending any time reading about or working on any aspect of you know personalized health?
2: To a certain extent, we've always done that. Meaning, if you come in with whatever is your medical issue, we're going to figure out what's going on with you, which medicines will be most effective for you. The idea, though, that we will be able to predict based on your genes right. or your proteins, for example, which antibiotic is specifically best for you, I think is going to be a time that really refines what we can do.
1: Mm -hmm. Like the genetics of my family led to discovery that I should be taking baby aspirin to reduce chances of deep vein thrombosis. That was empowering. That's just one example of personalizing. Um, Turns out I still had that, but Now other family members are doing other things to hopefully limit those chances. I guess that's the 90% behavior versus the 10% genetics factor.
2: Right. It would be good to know what the genetics imply. Can't predict for certain, except for some diseases. If somebody, say, has the genes that are going to give you a certain form of breast cancer, okay, we know that. But we can't really say at this point, uh, we've got an 8-year-old boy, and sometime in his 70s, he's likely to have a heart attack. Uh, we're not even close to that sort of pronouncement.
1: But are we still saying that every man over a certain age should have baby aspirin every day, for instance? No. Okay. That used it to be depends. the case, right?
2: Yeah, we change that recommendation every couple of years. <laughs> okay. Oh, great. Yeah, uh, Which means that we're uncertain.
1: Makes you more important to all of us, as if that yeah. was needed.
2: Yeah, you can't just come once and get the answer because we reserve the right to change the answer. So you need to keep up with things.
1: Well, I want to reserve the right to continue to count on you as a friend. And by doing that, we're not going to overburden our time with you today. You're a very busy human being. We never take for granted how valuable your time is. So Dr. Mark Gilanoff, thank you so much for being on Up To today. We're really pleased we had this time with you. Thank you. Wow, so many terrific takeaways from this jam-packed, somewhat brief discussion with heart surgeon Mark Gilanoff. Here are my takeaways for your consideration. Number one, it was really telling to me that both Dr. Gilanov as an individual and the Cleveland Clinic as an institution are always striving to become better versions of themselves. For instance, Dr. Gilanov didn't apply for the leadership position at the heart center until he was convinced that he had achieved the level of skills he needed to first as a heart surgeon. So he waited an additional 10 years. Additionally, he mentioned how the Cleveland Clinic itself continues to visit other hospitals so that they can be on the cutting edge of innovation in spite of the fact they've been ranked number one in heart care for more than 20 years. Number two, although it may sound obvious, his admission that Dr. Gilanov is merely trying to do the best that he can, that's all that we all can do. Now, that's all that we all can do but we should truly try to be the best that we can be in whatever we're pursuing. I heard no hint of any kind of destructive competitive nature when asking about all of the accomplishments he's made, but rather him just trying to be the best he could be. Number three, on a lighter note, but something we can all relate to on nutrition and fitness, going from zero activity to walking is of greater benefit even than going from being a walker to a runner. We can all do that. Number four, he's looked at all the studies and really there's no conclusive evidence that red wine is any better for us than white wine. The end result, looking at all the studies, is that a little bit of alcohol, one serving, whether it's beer or red or white wine, is equally beneficial, but only in moderation. And number five, regarding nutrition in the United States, Dr. Gillenoff feels we're not lacking education How many people don't know smoking is bad for us or that too much fast food is bad for us? He emphasized it's more about behavior modification, not education. And now it's time for this week's listener mailbag. This week, my favorite mailbag entry came from Evan in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His note to me was very specific about what he enjoyed about the Bernie Marino episode. And he asked me how often we release episodes. He liked hearing that they come out every two weeks because he's planning on sharing each episode with his national sales team. And then at their sales meetings, go over their takeaways and their learnings from each up to discussion. Wow. Thank you, Evan. That means so much to us.
0: This is Dave Douglas, the producer of the Up to podcast. Adam didn't know it at the time, but I had begun recording just prior to the interview, making sure everything was working properly when Adam shared something with Dr. Gilanov. And it came up during the interview as well, but after sharing this clip with Adam, we both thought it was worthwhile to include it here. So here's a brief moment just before the interview actually began. So one of my best friends, Biff Baker, through me, you
1: worked on his father-in-law like seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And when Biff heard... I was interviewing you today. He wrote you this and he took this picture.
2: Oh, thanks. It's autographed.
1: But isn't that amazing? I mean, this yeah. is what you do. Like seven years mm-hmm. you've given this man seven years of life with his grandkids.
2: Yeah, that's what we aim to do. Good looking <laughs> family.
1: Up to is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast.